So uh, many of you here, of course, are familiar with Apex. You've been coming for a while, but the truth is, is that Apex over the last few years has gone through what you might call a kind of replanting process, where one season in the church's life had come to an end, and a new season began. And that new season, interestingly, seemed to overlap with a global pandemic where people really had to reassess what it was that they were doing and how it was that they were connected to the church communities that they were part of. And so many of you who are here are here as really new people to Apex. And it's important every so often for us to kind of get a, a glimpse as to what it is that God has called into being the community that, that is called Apex. Apex, of course, is represented on Sundays, both online and in-house. And probably if you look at it on average, there are more people online than in-house on any one week. But the representation of Apex on a Sunday is but the tip of the iceberg. Most of what's going on at Apex is going on during the week. And most of that is going on in communities that are collectively gathering around a sense of desire to be together, learning from the Lord, and a desire to be together, to be on mission with Jesus in the things that he's wanting to do in Dayton and beyond. And so these communities on mission are the undergirding reality of what Apex is about. And so on Sundays, what you'll see is something a little different than what you perhaps might encounter at the average church. What we're, what we're attempting to do on a Sunday here at Apex is to train and equip people to function effectively in their households, in their communities, and function effectively in the mission that God has given them. Given them perhaps individually as they express his call to be witnesses within the places that they regularly live and work and encounter others, and to be on mission collectively in community. And so Sundays is very much about training and equipping the people of God to be doing the things that the people of God are called to do. And so in many ways, this is the place where we kind of figure things out, we think things through, we reflect deeply together so that church is more significant on a Monday than it is on a Sunday. So church that is more significant on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then gathers on a Sunday to re-equip, reassess, reflect, and look to what it is that God's calling us into, that's what it is that you discover here at Apex. And so as we're going through the passages that we're looking at in the scriptures, we're looking at it, of course, from the perspective of a person who may encounter it for the first time, this passage, or maybe this material they've never seen in this particular way before, but, but we're also looking at the Bible from the point of view that many of you have read the Bible before, you're aware of what it is that's written there, 
you become familiar with the text of the Gospels, the text of the Old and the New Testament, but we're looking at it from the point of view of how can God use this divinely inspired scripture to equip us to be effective as the church on Monday. So that's what we're doing when we look at the Bible each week. And this week, we're going to look at the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well in John chapter four. But we have to, I think, encounter it in perhaps a different way than what we would normally do if we're gonna really get hold of this passage as a passage to equip us to do the things that God wants us to do. The first thing we need to remember is that last week it was John chapter three. Now I know that that's not a great revelation for anybody who's following us through the Bible because obviously we go from one chapter to the next. But last week, chapter three gave us some really important insights. Chapter 316 is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we noted that this verse, of course, is the verse that everyone remembers from John's gospel and certainly the verse that everyone remembers from John chapter three. But we also remarked and looked at the fact that when you look at John chapter three, verse 17 seems to be the verse on which everything hinges. Verse 17 is the, is the verse that helps us to really understand what God is saying through verse 16. Because verse 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And then you say, well, how's he gonna save it? Well, verse 16 tells you, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. And so, so verse 17 is enormously important in our understanding of that chapter but of course, we remember that when John wrote this gospel, he wasn't writing it in chapters and verses. They came later so that people could study the text. He was writing it very much as a stream of consciousness. He was writing it very much under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he remembered and recalled the events of his life with Jesus. And no doubt, he's writing it with all of the other gospels in mind because it appears to be the last gospel that was written, so he's writing it to kind of fill in the gaps, to give a bigger picture, and to give us a broader perspective of what it is to know Jesus and meet him. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Now, I don't know whether you, anybody watch Netflix in here? Three people, okay, well, obviously, <laughs> the rest of you are watching something else, but, um, but on Netflix, I've noticed that there are these, uh, these new kind of dramas, and they're called asynchronous narratives. Anybody come across these? Like, like Kaleidoscope, anybody watch Kaleidoscope? So confusing. It's, it's set up so that when you watch an episode, you don't really have any idea where that episode is in the flow of the story 
that is being presented. And so you watch episode one, and it's actually something that happened 20 years later. You watch episode two, and it's out of sync with episode one, and you're thinking, what the heck is going on here? Well, part of it is because they want to be cool, and part of it, part of it is, that, is that when we deal with life, we don't really deal with life in the way that we present it in a single storyline. Because, you know, you entered church this morning and some of you smelt something as you came in that reminded you of going to church when you were a little kid. Some of you saw something and you remembered something from the previous week. Some of you heard something and you found yourself taken back to a previous occasion when maybe it was a good or a bad experience. You see, our mind doesn't work in this kind of linear way. It's, it's working in a way that's quite different to the way that we often present stories. And so, as we look at John chapter four, I want to go to the end of the story so that you understand what it is that God's trying to do for us and with us today. Turn to John chapter four and verse 35. Here's Jesus talking to his disciples after he's had a conversation at the well with a woman. And this is what, um, this is what Jesus says in verse 35. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. And he's saying these words as the, as the town of Sychar, the Samaritan town of Sychar, is running out to the well to meet Jesus. Hundreds of people are running from the town towards him. They're probably wearing the traditional robes of the Samaritans which are white which is why in an older translation of this, of this passage, it says the, the fields are white unto harvest. That's the actual word that's being used there because when the disciples looked up, they saw all these people running towards them and they're thinking, they're Samaritans, they hate us, we don't really like them and they're running towards us, what's gonna happen next? And Jesus says what's gonna happen next is that God is gonna bring in a harvest of lives for his kingdom. Open your eyes and look, says Jesus. Now, because we've got an asynchronous narrative going on, at the bottom of the screen right now it says, three hours earlier, let's go back to the beginning of the story. John chapter four and verse four. Now Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now this is an amazing story and reveals Jesus in his most disruptive presence, his, his most disruptive self. What Jesus is doing here is something akin to a pastor, me, going to a strip joint, speaking to one of the dancers, and sending her as a missionary to Dayton. It would be fairly newsworthy, and deeply shocking, and thoroughly threatening to the religious community. Because this woman is a woman who lives on the margins of society. We don't know the circumstances that pushed her there. No one would choose the life that she's living because the life that she's living has put her in a position of such shame and personal embarrassment that she has to live 
with the eyes, the glances, the words, and the comments daily. A woman who is in this particular position would be very similar to the way that she's presented here. She'd have to be really confident even to function on a daily basis. We know that in the time of Jesus, uh, women who lost their husbands and became widowers were often put into real extremity. Privation and poverty quickly became their fare. Often women in those situations were put in a position where prostitution was the only way to provide survival for themselves and their children. This woman is not in that, if you like, place within the margins of society, but she's obviously found a way of surviving and dealing with life by having a succession of men who can provide for her within this terribly kind of patriarchal and chauvinistic world that she lives in, can provide her with the necessary security and provision that she needs to simply survive. Now she lives outside of the boundaries of the religious life of the average Jewish person and the average Samaritan person. And of course, Jesus, with his prophetic insight, is able to see what's going on. Maybe he's commenting to himself initially about the fact that she's coming to draw water in the middle of the day. You see, you never draw water in the middle of the day. It's too hot, it's too difficult, and a water pot weighing about 40 pounds, I mean, that's heavy enough even in the cool of the day. But in the middle of the day, that's a lot. And often the wells are outside of the town, and so it's a good distance between you and your home. Women, traditionally then, and in cultures that continue to exist in similar conditions to this, women would often find that the time of gathering water was the time of connecting with friends, sharing stories and information, having a little bit of respite from the daily grind. And so the women would gather early morning or in the early evening, gather the water, get the water, spend time with their friends, and then scatter again to reassemble at the next opportunity to get water. She was coming in the middle of the day when she didn't expect to see anyone. Jesus is there and he's sitting by the well. Now, we need to understand what's going on here from a cultural point of view. Wells were the place where people shared and exchanged stories. But the well was also the place for social connection of all kinds. This, of course, is something that's known to both the Samaritan woman and to Jesus because their history, their common history, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even on into the story of Moses, is common both to the Samaritans and to the Jews. The Samaritans would recognize the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jews would recognize all of the books of the Old Testament. But the common heritage are the patriarchs, the stories 
of those early people who found a new God. Here's the interesting thing. When Abraham wanted a wife for his son, he sent his servant and she found her where? At a well. When Jacob was escaping the land and retreating from the wrath of his brother, he came to a well and met a girl called Rachel who became his wife. When Moses was running away from Egypt because he'd killed the guard that had mistreated his fellow countrymen, he came to the land of Midian and found a well. And guess what? He found a wife called Zipporah. Now, it's impossible for someone with that common heritage to meet a single man in the middle of the day and not have those stories running through your mind. It just is. What's he doing here? What's going on? Wait a minute, he's talking to me. You see, when we begin to understand the texture of the story, we begin to understand the gravity and the significance of what it is that's going on here. Jesus is driving a coach and horses through respectable behavior. This is not the thing that anyone should be doing. You don't talk to women at the well, not by yourself. Jesus is not only comfortable in doing that, he's comfortable about talking about the most intimate details of this woman's life. Jesus is the disruptor. And when we find ourselves encountering Jesus as this kind of plaster statue or the kind of Scandinavian blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus that is sometimes depicted in churches, we don't have a picture of what it is that we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is the most disruptive person you'll ever meet. Of course he brings comfort. Of course he brings kindness. But in the midst of the kindness and the comfort, he's shaking the very foundations of our life. And when we're willing to let him do that, then we're willing to allow him to change us in the way that makes us the person we're destined to be. Give me a drink, he says. Now, what is, what is Jesus revealing by this? Well, he's revealing human frailty. In John chapter one, if you like, the verse that governs the entirety of John's gospel says this, the word, the son of God, spoken of as the word, the word became flesh, in the person of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us those of you who were here when I had my motorcycle up here in a tent, remember? 
made his dwelling among us. Literally, he pitched his tent in our community. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. He came full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Son of God, has taken on flesh. The consequences of taking on flesh means that he lives a life like you and I and has to deal with the weaknesses of the human flesh. Jesus is tired and thirsty. The Word has become flesh. Jesus, tired and thirsty, sits at the well. He dwells among us. What a man would normally do in that situation where he's caught off guard, he's in the middle of the day, he's thirsty, he needs water, and he sees someone else coming, specifically a woman, he would distance himself and separate himself from the well so that there's no insinuation of anything going on. Jesus stays right where he is. The word became flesh. He's tired and thirsty. Dwells among us. He's sitting right there by the well. But when he's sitting there right by the well, he's full of grace and truth. Grace means he has something to give that he wants everyone to receive. He starts with his need. He says, will you give me a drink? She's utterly stunned. You're a Jew and a man. I mean, in the pecking order in society, men and women are so far distant that there's really no contact between them. If you add to that the distance between the heretic Samaritans and the religious Jews, I mean, they're just light years apart. You, a Jew, and me, a Samaritan woman, you're asking me for a drink. Jesus is full of what? Grace and truth. Say that again. What's he full of? If he's full of grace and truth, then the thing that he's thinking about is, I've got something to give this woman. I need something from her. I need water. I've got something to give this woman. So what's the first words from his lips after she challenges him? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now living water is a a really interesting thing in this context. This woman is of course living outside the boundaries of religious life, living outside the boundaries of moral life and therefore would need to go through some process of purification and forgiveness for her to enter back into life and community with everyone else. Now, if you're a Samaritan or a Jew, the way that you do that is that you symbolize the cleansing of your life with the cleansing of your body. And you usually take a bath, and it's called a mikvah bath. But the bath is not water that's just been poured in with a plug at the bottom, and then you take the plug out and it's gone. The mikvah bath always has running water, water that runs in and runs out. 
because to be cleansed, you need literally, in the language of the day, you need living water. Jesus says to her, I know what it is that you feel like every day. I know how alienated and ashamed you feel. I know how unclean you feel and how other people make you feel that way and they seem to enjoy it. I've got a gift for you. Now, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world but to save it. So he knows what's going on because the prophetic insight that he has of course indicates what's going on here. She's coming in the middle of the day because she's separated from the community. But of course he knows the conditions of her life. It would be very easy for Jesus to begin enumerating the conditions of her life as a series of sins that need to be forgiven. Instead of that, he says, I've got a gift for you. A gift that's not an external living water, but a living water that functions within. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of living water. Imagine never having to worry about forgiveness again. Imagine that. Imagine never having to worry about whether you can be clean before God again. Imagine coming from the very margins of society, longing for acceptance, to hear someone say, there's living water that you can have as a gift within you, not external to you, so that every day you know that you can connect with the living God. What would that be like? What would the transformation be like if I didn't have to worry about the shadow of sin every day? What would it be like if every day I didn't have to, to deal with the complexities of condemnation and feeling shame? Trying to find solutions for my own survival that only put me in a position of guilt. What would that be like? It would be amazing. Jesus says, if you knew who it was that was offering you this gift, you'd say, sure, let's go. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? She goes on. She's kind of an interesting person. And she's got a certain amount of um, chutzpah. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty. I won't have to come here and draw the water. Go and call your husband and then come back. I don't have a husband. You're right. 
You've had five husbands and the man you currently have is not your husband. Jesus came to save the world, not condemn it. This was the moment. This was the moment when she would discover whether she was condemned by him or not. And all he says is, the invitation is open to you and whoever you bring. See that? Go back and find your husband and bring him back. I know he's not your husband, just bring him back. Yeah, but just bring him back. But is, just bring him back. But he's one of, I know he's one of, I, I know that. Just go get him. Is there any explanation? No, you don't have to give any explanation. Just go and get him. Don't you find this amazing? What is Jesus full of? Grace and truth. The grace of Jesus is amazing. Because he has a solution not only for the woman, but for her partner. And it's as, a, it's as though he's going to offer this well of, of this spring of living water not only to her, but to him. And it would appear, if it's for her and for him, I mean, they're at the very bottom of the barrel. Surely it's for everybody. Surely if I can receive this spring of living water cleansing me every day and, and my partner can receive it, surely it's for everybody. She's on a roll now. She's thinking, man, this is awesome. I've got a prophet right next to me. Better ask him some really important stuff like, how come all the division between you and me and the Samaritans and the, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants and all of that? Yeah? I mean, that's it's, it's basically what's going on, isn't it? She's thinking, wow, I'm, I'm really, this is a great day. I can get all my answers. And so she says, you know, well, there's the Protestants and there's Catholics and, you know. Samaritans and Jews. And Jesus says, look, here's the thing. The Father is looking for a particular kind of person. Oh, I guess I don't measure up to that, she's thinking. There's a particular kind of worshiper that the Father seeks. What kind of worshiper? Well, one that says the rosary every day. <laughs> one that knows the four spiritual laws. No. There's a particular kind of worshiper. And the kind of worshiper that the Father is seeking is someone who worships him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Now, here's the thing. This is a little bit technical, and for those of you who aren't particularly interested, you can switch off now for a minute. 
But the word spirit here, pneuma in Greek, can either be translated with a capital S indicating the Spirit of God or a small s indicating the identity of a person. Yeah? What Jesus appears to be saying, and just about every translator of the New Testament suggests this, what Jesus seems to be saying is this. God is a spiritual being. God is a spiritual being. And he wants people who recognize that they're a spiritual being as the foundation of their identity to connect with him as spiritual beings recognizing their identity and functioning in the truth that is Jesus. The word truth, aletheia, it, it's basically reality. The word reality. And it always refers to Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, look, the Father is looking for people who will be real. He's looking for people who will own their identity. He's looking for people who will recognize that they're spiritual beings and they're spiritual beings because God made them as a spiritual being. That they have a particular way of functioning as a spiritual being. And as that spiritual being, what they need is Jesus. And then the connection's made. You worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's like a three-pin plug. You need all three of them. One of them's going to ground you, the Father. And then the other two are going to make it all work for you. You're coming to him with who you are. Your pneuma, your identity. And you recognize that in your identity, you need Jesus. Because Jesus gives the gift that will cleanse you continuously. Jesus gives you the understanding that will frame your life. Jesus, the aletheia, the truth, will show you and define for you what's important, what's unimportant, what's real and what's not real. Jesus, connecting to your identity is what it means to be a worshiper. Well, don't you need a, like a, a theology degree? What, um, do I need to memorize my Bible? Do, I mean, sure, there's something. No, none of those things. They're all useful. Hopefully, I've got lots of theological degrees. I hope they are useful. And I know many of you memorize the scriptures. Tremendously useful. But it's not what makes you a worshiper. What makes you a worshiper is that you're honest about who you are and you say, I need Jesus to define my connection with God and in that you are a worshiper and not just a worshiper, the kind of worshiper that the Father is looking for. Isn't that amazing? Now, 
The woman thinks this is incredible. She says, well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Now, what we need to get here is, is a, a kind of clarity. Jesus gives the clearest definition of worship to a woman who is on the very margins of society. A woman who is separated from the religious community. He gives her the clearest definition of worship in the whole Bible. And then next, gives the clearest indication of who he is to anybody else in the Bible. She says, we know that when Messiah comes, he says, that's me. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. The level of revelation that's going on here for a woman who, quite frankly, we would be nowhere nearer. This is the disruptive work of Jesus. Now, how do we get to do the work that Jesus does? How do we, as believers, or people who are considering belief, how do, how do we kind of get in on this thing that Jesus is doing? Because it pr looks pretty awesome, doesn't it? Well, Jesus gives us a, a, a very simple answer. And the simple answer is this. You need to open your eyes. You need to open your eyes. What would close your eyes? Condemnation of other people. That would close them. Who is it you think deserves condemnation? I mean, we don't have to enumerate it here, but, you know, you've got some ideas. Who, who deserves condemnation? Well, those are people who you don't have your eyes open to as potential followers of Jesus. That's true, isn't it? Who, who else would be perhaps a kind of a, a person or a, a criteria that would prevent us from, from seeing somebody. Well, how about this? How about your fear? What would people say? What would people say if they saw me talking to dot, dot, dot? What would people say if they thought I was doing dot, dot, dot? See, fear and condemnation, along with guilt and shame, will always close our eyes. It'll always close our eyes because we'll either close our eyes because we don't want to see a person, or we're closing our eyes because we're screwing up our eyes and hoping that nothing's going to happen that we think might happen. And when our eyes are closed, we can't see the harvest. Jesus says, you say that we're waiting for some big thing to happen four months from now. Maybe the revival in Asbury will come to Dayton. You're saying certain things are conditions that we have to wait for and, and when we get there, it'll be great. 
wrong. Jesus says, open your eyes. It's right here, right now. There's a harvest right here, right now. It's just that we don't see it. And the reason we don't see it is because we're not looking in that direction. Or if we are looking in that direction, our eyes are closed to the possibility that that could be the harvest. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Sally and I were working in the inner city of London and um, what we needed were people with a bit of money and a little bit of capacity and a little bit of freedom to help us build that local church. Because, you know, that's what you need to build a local church. And so you're looking around and you're smiling at all the young couples who are out there buying stuff in the street and you're kind of, hey, how's it all going? I'm a really awesome pastor and everything's going to be cool. But that's not where the harvest was. The harvest was amongst little children, six and seven, eight-year-olds. And what we discovered was, as those little children came to the weekday, not the Sunday, to the weekday event, we were able to say to them, are you all right walking home? Well, I'm a bit scared because it's dark now. Okay, well, we'll, and we'd walk them home and then we'd meet their parents and their parents would come to church. We had no idea that that was the strategy that God had. We opened our eyes to the, the harvest that was ripening right there in front of us and God did amazing things. In Sheffield, years later, back in England, what you need for a church to kind of function, it's an old church, you know, the building's falling down, everything's old in England. What you need is some people with a bit of money, a bit of capacity, can help get things going a little bit. So you're looking around thinking, hey, let's get some of those people in. How can we attract them? How can we advertise ourselves as the kind of place that they would like to be? And what we discovered was penniless college kids who had no money and no opportunity to help us at all. That was the harvest. And parents would come to us and say, wow, we're, because the kids had come from another place, you know, they'd come to the church, they'd say, wow, it's amazing what God's doing. Here's a check. Thank you. Where is God ripening a harvest today? I don't know. But I can tell you it's not in the expected places. And it may not be in the places that we're looking and hoping that God is ripening a harvest. It may not be anything like your house church, the people that God is giving you connection with. It may not be anything like the people that you can see around you right now, that God is ripening a harvest. I don't know who they are. But let me give you a couple of indications. It seems as though God is bringing to faith people who are homeless and who have been incarcerated. Well, they can't help us as a church, can they? Homeless people? I mean, really, do we really want them here? And what about people who've just done jail time? 
good night. What kinds of things are we going to have to work out to do that? I don't know. But what I've noticed is that that's where a harvest is ripening. And maybe if you want to be involved in the harvest, you should find out the people who are involved in that work. And maybe if you want to learn how to bring in a harvest, maybe you should connect with those folks. I think God is raising up a harvest and ripening a harvest amongst college kids here as well. And they're not going to help us financially either. Does everybody get what it is that I'm saying here? What God wants to do is recruit each one of us into his mission field. And you say, well, I don't have any qualifications for that. Well, an adulterous woman was the first missionary to the Samaritans. How about that? How about that? No qualifications. No indication that her life had changed. Of course, it had changed because she'd met Jesus. But no indication from any external means that her life had changed. She went back to the town and said, you, you need to meet somebody who's told me everything I ever did. And they all go, everything? I mean, literally, that's what she says. Come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And you know what they're thinking. They're going, what? Could he be the Christ, she says. And they start to run from the town. And the disciples who come back with some food for Jesus say, Jesus, you need to eat something. He says, listen, there's some more important things than food right now. What's more important than food? Open your eyes. Look. The fields are ripe for harvest. You didn't even work for it. Here's my encouragement to you. My encouragement to you is this. Open your eyes this week. And what are you going to open your eyes to? People who like you. People who respond to you. People who smile at you. And you say, well, it may be somebody from the opposite sex. Okay, smile back. <laughs> be nice. Well, won't they get the wrong idea? I don't know. Find ways to open our eyes, God, so that we're in the grocery store, we're at the gas station, we're in our work, we're in our place of engagement. And God is doing something in someone's heart. We don't know what it is. And maybe they're feeling broken today. Maybe they're feeling isolated today. Maybe today is a day when they need a kindly word from a follower of Jesus to help them on their way to following him too. Let's open our eyes this week. And let's see where God is ripening the harvest. And who knows, it could be really fun. Let's pray.